our government, our systems of employment, even the delivery of our health care and education systems are run by economics rather than ethics. We think about balance sheets before we think about people. This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of the show, and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Backstory, The Next System Project, The Atlantic Magazine, a TED Talk by Courtney Martin, and a Progressive Faith Sermon by Reverend Roger Ray. In 1939, Harvard began tracking a few hundred young men. These were undergraduates that university officials deemed the finest specimens we have. You know, the best and the brightest among, well, the best and the brightest. The aim was to study normal young adult development. So when you do that, of course, you want to pick all white men from Harvard, right? (laughs) This is Robert Waldinger, a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. Waldinger's been in charge of the study for the last 13 years. Because, get this, it's still going on. The surviving men are in their 80s and 90s. They include the original undergrads, but also a second group of low-income teenagers from Boston who were added in 1942. The study was supposed to predict which young men would become the most professionally successful adults. It was funded at first by department store magnate W.T. Grant. And what he really wanted to do was find out what sort of men made the best store managers. While the study subjects were supposed to remain anonymous, we do know they weren't all destined to be retail execs. John F. Kennedy and legendary Washington Post editor Ben Bradley were among the participants. But where does happiness come in, you might ask? Well, somewhere along the line, the data began to reveal hints about how to lead a happy life something the designers of the so-called grant study never intended to track. Happiness was not a goal in 1942. You know, people would talk about contributing to society. The inner city guys would talk about making a family. There were missions in life, if you will, more than there was the sense of, I want to be happy, I want to be self-fulfilled. That is a concept that came more into being in the 60s and 70s. Of course, the study's findings are mostly limited to white men born in a very specific time period, and Waldinger is careful not to speak for any other populations. But he still thinks there are important lessons to be drawn from the data. For example, happiness grows with age. We actually notice the positive more than the negative as we get older, and we remember it better. And that's very much in contrast to younger adults who notice the negative more than the positive, right? So there are curmudgeons that get more curmudgeonly as they age. But (laughs) by and large, we all get to be a little bit more like Pollyanna as we get older. Interesting. In some ways, evolutionarily, that may be adaptive in that when you're a young adult, you want to see some of the dangers on the horizon and be able to anticipate them. Mm -hmm. But one argument about why older adults pay more attention to the positive, is that they have a sense that time is short, that life is not going to go on forever. Right. And they begin to ask the question, am I really taking time to enjoy what's here? 
But what this was about initially, as I understand it, was trying to identify characteristics that led to leadership, not particularly to happiness. How did this morph into what some people have called the happiness study? Well, it morphed into the happiness study because one of the things that we know, of course, is that success and even leadership are not equivalent to happiness. And we found, no surprise, that some of the happiest people were not the most successful in publicly recognized terms. And some of the more unhappy people were quite successful if you look at their resumes. So could you give me an example of the profile of a happy person who was, quote, not successful? Yes. One of the happiest men was a history teacher at a private school. He started right after college. He had to work summers as a fuller brush salesman going door to door to make ends meet Uh because he made so little money. Sure. He stayed teaching at the same prep school for decades. And he had these warm, rich relationships with his wife, with his children, had hobbies that he loved, really enjoyed his work. So successful in the sense of being fulfilled and engaged and happy, not successful as measured by uh, income level or uh, status. Exactly. Stepping back and looking at this remarkable treasure trove of data, what were the big surprises for you? I think the biggest surprise was how much warm, close relationships determine not only how happy you are, but how healthy you are, and that relationships really get under your skin in a good way, and the absence of relationships or very acrimonious relationships get under your skin in a bad way. That's probably the biggest surprise. But isn't that a chicken and egg kind of thing? Don't happier people establish better relationships? I mean, which comes first? It is a chicken and egg kind of thing. So that it's almost impossible to tease out which causes which, as with so many things in human development. However, some of the physical effects, and actually the physical effects too, that if your health is terrible, you're less fun to be around, you're less likely sure. to reach out to other people. So the relationships are never one way. Yes. You know, if we go back to the founding early America, the pursuit of happiness uh, had a very particular meaning uh, in those days. What would you say the pursuit of happiness means today? Hmm. I think that the happiest people in our study are the people who are engaged in the world in pursuits that they care about. Interesting. It could be in raising kids. It could be in gardening. It could be in being president of the United States. But it's that quality of engagement in things that you find meaningful that I think is really where happiness shows up. So it's not so much hedonism. It's not, am I happy right this second? Mm -hmm. It's more about the longer term. So for example, that man who taught history at a prep school his whole career loved mentoring kids. Robert, 
if relationships are so important, how can we spend most of our time thinking yeah. about stuff? Well, things, things we can buy. Partly because our media <laughs> knows that they can promise us all kinds of satisfaction with stuff and quick fixes. And so we are bombarded with stories that if we just get this or that next thing, we will be happy. It will, we may even have happier relationships. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, look at Viagra commercials. Right, And exactly. Seattle's commercials, they're all about happy relationships. What two people in two separate bathtubs are doing and how that works, <laughs> I don't understand. And then looking out over the ocean together in a cold kind of metallic bathtub, I don't get it. But, you know, life is hard and life is full of unhappy and difficult stuff. And there are these promises out there in the culture that you can avoid all that or you can get away from all that. Right. And that, that I think, is what turns people away from what's right here, including their relationships, toward these kind of mirages. Is it just a What is the commons, and how can we practice commoning to transform the current social and economic paradigm? Commoning is a way to manage shared resources that depends neither on the state nor on the market. But how does commoning work? Economist David Bollier has a few ideas. Let's imagine the commons as a shared resource to which everyone has a right. Some people think that managing the commons without state regulation or market forces is impossible. They argue that people will ruin the commons by over-consuming the shared resource, or by wrecking shared spaces with pollution and waste. This argument that people are incapable of managing shared resources for the common good without the state or market as arbiters has been dubbed the tragedy of the commons. And according to David Bollier, it's totally wrong. Bollier says that the people who argue that the commons is impossible to manage make the fundamental mistake of treating the commons as a thing with those selfish commons-destroying people existing outside of it. But the commons isn't a thing. It's a process that involves everyone in the community working to share and distribute it fairly. People continually and diligently build and sustain a commons by negotiating how best to distribute the commons, creating the rules they need to manage the commons together, and building the infrastructure needed to keep the commons thriving for generations to come. That's how David Bollier's vision of commoning works. With the community using commoning as a way to successfully manage everything from lobster fishing, to the water that the lobsters swim in, to the software used in the computers of people who eat lobster and drink water, 
Since commoning is a process that makes for a fair way to manage and distribute shared resources that belong to everyone, David Bollier thinks it's an important part of the next system. I think it really came home when I had kids. With kids, you realize you'll have this kind of 18-year window, and then it's done. So every moment that I have with my kids, I realize there's something I can't, I can never buy back. No matter how much money I make or how powerful I get, I can't buy time. I don't have that long to spend with people I love, and I, I'm not going to be at my fucking keyboard at 9 p.m. on Friday night because there's no life there. Treehouse is an online school and our goal is to take adult students from zero to job ready in as little as six months for only 25 bucks. So we have about 135,000 students around the world and I think about 85 full-time employees and I think we'll be at about 100 pretty soon. So we came up with the idea of the 32-hour work week when I was sitting on the couch with my wife. I think it was a Saturday night and she just turned to me and said, what is this? I thought we could control our life now that we ran our own company, but we seem to be, you know, working a lot more. And my initial reaction was, come on, there's just too much work to do. And then I thought about it, I thought, you know what, she's right. There's no rule. You know, you have to work 40 hours, you have to work more to be successful. I'm Andrew Chalkley and I'm an expert teacher at Treehouse. I create online uh, curricula for people wanting to get into the tech industry. Well, I'm married to Lauren. I've got a seven-year-old daughter called Hello. Imogen, a three-year-old Henry and a baby George. Uh, Henry is a handful. Uh, he's needed a lot more attention than what Imogen, our eldest, has needed. So having me home, playing with him more, helping him stimulate and grow, just having a full-time job, the, the stability of that, and still see those glimpses of your kids growing up doing more things with them. I get to do some of those jobs that maybe Lauren would have had to have done, especially juggling that with another two young kids at home and one at school is kind of a nightmare. Whereas like with Treehouse, it's nowhere near like the intensity of this treadmill that you're constantly on. You're defined by those five days and those two. That ratio is just crazy now to me. You know, it's just, it's like, oh, I'm doing all this for this. Does that mean you get another Oh no, it's the rose one that you get That myth of like more hours equals more productivity is totally false because people just hate the jobs, hate the managers, hate the bosses and resent the fact that they don't have time to spend with the people that they love. It was pretty shocking. <laughs> I thought Ryan was nuts and I would say that I was very strong in the opinion that it made no sense to cut your your workforce's man hour time by you know 20 percent but i'm not a skeptic anymore there's a lot of value that the 32-hour work week provides a lot of it is hard to measure though if you're going to break it down to just dollars and cents then you know of course it's going to cost us more on a per hour basis for people to work on things but the intangible benefits that we've seen are priceless
I think that when people aren't overworked, the chance for that light bulb or epiphany moment or whatever you want to call it to go off is, is increased. But, you know, I think with, with Treehouse, it didn't come out of a place of we need to foster creative energy. It was more of a we want to take care of our people as opposed to, you know, work harder and, and you know, go through life without enjoying some of the things that we all should be spending more time enjoying. I think hard work is great. I mean, I work really hard, you know, Monday to Thursday. I think it's hard for us because we view it as moral. You know, I'm working hard and I'm busy. Um, you know, it's good. And yet, it doesn't really always yield results. If anyone says, we can't do it because we raise money. No, not true. You know, we can't do it because we need fast revenue growth. No, we've done that. It's really down to people to choose. Are you gonna talk about how it would be nice to actually work less? Or are you going to do something about it? And the truth is a lot of CEOs are workaholics. And that's why they're not going to do it. Not, not because their company can't. And I think that's wrong. We've proven that you can take it from an experiment to something that's actually doable for real companies, for real people in you know, highly competitive markets. Right now, we're able to compete against scary companies like Google and Facebook for talent because we pay full salaries and we give you full benefits. And we basically take ridiculously good care of people because we think it's the right thing to do. I think this is about having a more balanced total life. Um, it's not about, you know, more family time or more play time or, or less work time. It's about saying, Hey, we are fortunate to live in a period in human history where it's possible to work less. I don't believe there's an afterlife or anything like that, so this is it. It makes it even more important that we spend you know, our moments carefully. You say this moment can't be won. Well, I say to you that this moment isn't As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. I'm a journalist, so I like to look for the untold stories, the lives that quietly play out under the scream of headlines. 
I've also been going about the business of putting down roots, choosing a partner, making babies. So, for the last few years, I've been trying to understand what constitutes the 21st century good life. Both because I'm fascinated by the moral and philosophical implications, but also because I'm in desperate need of answers myself. We live in tenuous times. In fact, for the first time in American history, the majority of parents do not think that their kids will be better off than they were. This is true of rich and poor, men and women. Now, some of you might hear this and feel sad. After all, America is deeply invested in this idea of economic transcendence, that every generation kind of leapfrogs the one before it, earning more, buying more, being more. We've exported this dream all over the world, so kids in Brazil and China and even Kenya inherit our insatiable expectation for more. But when I read this historic poll for the first time, it didn't actually make me feel sad. It felt like a provocation. Better off based on whose standards? Is better off finding a secure job that you can count on for the rest of your life? Those are nearly extinct. People move jobs on average every 4.7 years. And it's estimated that by 2020, nearly half of Americans will be freelancers. Okay, so is better off just a number? Is it about earning as much as you possibly can? By that singular measurement, we are failing. Median per capita income has been flat since about 2000, adjusted for inflation. All right, so is better off getting a big house with a white picket fence? Less of us are doing that. Nearly five million people lost their homes in the Great Recession, and even more of us sobered up about the lengths we were willing to go or be tricked into going in many predatory cases to hold that deed. Homeownership rates are at their lowest since 1995. All right, so we're not finding steady employment, we're not earning as much money, and we're not living in big, fancy houses. Toll the funeral bells for everything that made America great. But are those the best measurements of a country's greatness, of a life well-lived? What I think makes America great is its spirit of reinvention. In the wake of the Great Recession, more and more Americans are redefining what better off really means. Turns out it has more to do with community and creativity than dollars and cents. Now, let me be very clear. The 14.8% of Americans living in poverty need money, plain and simple. And all of us need policies that protect us from exploitation by employers and financial institutions. Nothing that follows is meant to suggest that the gap between rich and poor is anything but profoundly immoral. But too often we let the conversation stop there. We talk about poverty as if it were a monolithic experience, about the poor as if they were solely victims. Part of what I've learned in my research and reporting is that the art of living well is often practiced most masterfully by the most vulnerable. Now, if necessity is the mother of invention, I've come to believe that a recession can be the father of consciousness. It confronts us with profound questions, questions we might be too lazy or distracted to ask in times of relative comfort. How should we work? 
How should we live? All of us, whether we realize it or not, seek answers to these questions with our ancestors kind of whispering in our ears. My great-grandfather was a drunk in Detroit who sometimes managed to hold down a factory job. He had, as unbelievable as it might sound, 21 children with one woman, my great-grandmother, who died at 47 years old of ovarian cancer. Now, I'm pregnant with my second child, and I cannot even fathom what she must have gone through. And if you're trying to do the math, there were six sets of twins. So my grandfather, their son, became a traveling salesman, and he lived boom and bust. So my dad grew up answering the door for debt collectors and pretending his parents weren't home. He actually took his braces off himself with pliers in the garage when his father admitted he didn't have money to go back to the orthodontist. So my dad, unsurprisingly, became a bankruptcy lawyer. Couldn't write this in a novel, right? Uh, he was obsessed with providing a secure foundation for my brother and I. So I asked these questions by way of a few generations of struggle. My parents made sure that I grew up on the kind of steady ground that allows one to question and risk and leap. And ironically, and probably sometimes to their frustration, it is their steadfast commitment to security that allows me to question its value or at least its value as we've historically defined it in the 21st century. So let's dig into this first question. How should we work? We should work like our mothers. That's right. We've spent decades trying to fit women into a work world built for company men. And many have done backbends to fit in, but others have carved a more unconventional path creating a patchwork of meaning and money with enough flexibility to do what they need to do for those that they love. My mom called it just making it work. Today, I hear life coaches call it a portfolio career. Whatever you call it, more and more men are craving these whole, if not harried, lives. They're waking up to their desire and duty to be present fathers and sons. Now, artist Anne Hamilton has said, Labor is a way of knowing. Labor is a way of knowing. In other words, what we work on is what we understand about the world. If this is true, and I think it is, then women who have disproportionately cared for the little ones and the sick ones and the aging ones have disproportionately benefited from the most profound kind of knowing there is, knowing the human condition. By prioritizing care, men are, in a sense, staking their claim to the full range of human existence. Now, this means the nine-to-five no longer works for anyone. Punch clocks are becoming obsolete as our career ladders. Whole industries are being born and dying every day. It's all nonlinear from here. So we need to stop asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And start asking them, how do you want to be when you grow up? Their work will constantly change. The common denominator is them. So the more they understand their gifts and create crews of ideal collaborators, the better off they will be. The challenge ahead is to reinvent the social safety net to fit this increasingly fragmented economy. We need portable health benefits. We need policies that reflect that everyone deserves to be vulnerable or care for vulnerable others without becoming destitute. We need to seriously consider a universal basic income. We need to reinvent labor organizing. 
The promise of a work world that is structured to actually fit our 21st century values, not some archaic idea about bringing home the bacon, is long overdue. Just ask your mother. Now, how about the second question? How should we live? We should live like our immigrant ancestors. When they came to America, they often shared apartments,、uh, survival tactics, childcare. Always knew how to fill one more belly, no matter how small the food available. But they were told that success meant leaving the village behind and pursuing that iconic symbol of the American dream, the white picket fence. And even today, you know, we see a white picket fence and we think success, self-possession. But when you strip away the sentimentality, what it really does is divides us. Many Americans are rejecting the white picket fence and the kind of highly privatized life that happened within it, and reclaiming village life, reclaiming interdependence instead. Fifty million of us, for example, are living in intergenerational households.、Uh, this number exploded with the Great Recession, but it turns out people actually like living this way. Two thirds of those who are living with multiple generations under one roof say it's improved their relationships. Some people are choosing to share homes not with family, but with other people who understand the health and economic benefits of daily community. Coabode, an online platform for single moms looking to share homes with other single moms, has 50,000 users, and people over 65 are especially prone to be looking for these alternative living arrangements. They understand that their quality of life depends on a mix of solitude and solidarity. Which is really true of all of us when you think about it, young and old alike. For too long, we've pretended that happiness is a king in his castle, but all the research proves otherwise. It shows that the healthiest, happiest, and even safest, in terms of both uh, uh, climate change disaster, in terms of crime, all of that, are Americans who live lives intertwined with their neighbors. Now, I've experienced this firsthand. For the last few years, I've been living in a co-housing community. It's 1.5 acres of persimmon trees, you know, this prolific blackberry bush that snakes around a community garden, all smack dab, by the way, in the middle of urban Oakland. The nine units are all built to be different, different sizes, different shapes, but they're meant to be as green as possible. So big, shiny black solar cells on our roof mean our electricity bill rarely exceeds more than five bucks in a month. The 25 of us who live there are all different ages and political persuasions and professions, and we live in homes that have everything a typical home would have. But additionally, we share an industrial-sized kitchen and eating area where we have common meals twice a week. Now, people, when I tell them I live like this, people often have one of two extreme reactions: either they say, "Why doesn't everyone live like this?" or they say, "That sounds totally horrifying. I would never want to do that." So let me reassure you: there is a sacred. Respect for privacy among us, but also a commitment to what we call radical hospitality—not the kind advertised by the Four Seasons, but the kind that says that every single person is worthy of kindness. Full stop. End of sentence. The biggest surprise for me of living in a community like this—you share all the domestic labor, the repairing, the cooking, the weeding—but you also share the emotional labor. Rather than depending only on the idealized family unit to get all of your emotional needs met, you have two dozen other people that you can go to to talk about a hard day at work or troubleshoot how to handle an abusive teacher. Teenagers in our community will often go to a parent that is or an adult that is not their parent 
to ask for advice. It's what bell hooks called revolutionary parenting. This humble acknowledgement that kids are healthier when they have a wider range of adults to emulate and count on. Turns out, adults are healthier too. It's a lot of pressure trying to be that perfect family behind that white picket fence. The new better off, as I've come to call it, is less about investing in the perfect family and more about investing in the imperfect village. Whether that's relatives living under one roof, a co-housing community like mine, or just a bunch of neighbors who pledge to really know and look out for one another, it's good common sense, right? And yet, money has often made us dumb about reaching out. The most reliable wealth is found in relationship. The new better off is not an individual prospect at all. In fact, if you're a failure or you think you're a failure, I've got some good news for you. You might be a success by standards you have not yet honored. Maybe you're a mediocre earner, but a masterful father. Maybe you can't afford your dream home, but you throw legendary neighborhood parties. If you're a textbook success, the implications of what I'm saying could be more grim for you. You might be a failure by standards you hold dear, but that the world doesn't reward. Only you can know. I know that I am not a tribute to my great grandmother, who lived such a short and brutish life. If I earn enough money to afford every creature comfort, you can't buy your way out of suffering or into meaning. There is no home big enough to erase the pain that she must have endured. I am a tribute to her if I live a life as connected and courageous as possible. In the midst of such widespread uncertainty, we may, in fact, be insecure, but we can let that insecurity make us brittle or supple. We can turn inward, lose faith in the power of institutions to change, even lose faith in ourselves, or we can turn outward, cultivate faith in our ability to reach out, to connect, to create. Turns out, the biggest danger is not failing to achieve the American dream. The biggest danger is achieving a dream that you don't actually believe in. So don't do that. Do the harder, more interesting thing, which is to compose a life where what you do every single day, the people you give your best love and ingenuity and energy to, aligns as closely as possible with what you believe. That, not something as mundane as making money, is a tribute to your ancestors. That is the beautiful struggle. We all understand that at a time like this, it is more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you are in a position to stand up when you know others can't. And if your budget's a little bit bloated, what might you be able to cut out to make room to support all of the independent media that you depend on? Maybe you're spending too much on your cable bill, your coffee habit, your cell phone, whatever. 
It's not exactly building a victory garden, but maybe there's something you can cut back on so you can redirect those funds to your favorite news sources who depend on supporters like you. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so I would be happy to set you up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. Just shoot me an email, j at bestofleft.com, and I'll send you an invoice to get you started. If you sign up to donate 6 bucks a month or more, you get access to the members-only podcast, which includes commercial-free versions of the show, as well as some bonus content that I make and tell some stories, mull over some big ideas. So if you get value out of this show and think it's worth supporting it, then I hope you will make the move to become a member today. So again, you can support this independent media show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. America's economic system has been generating massive wealth for those at the top, while the rest of the nation faces stagnant income, explosive debt, mass incarceration, and the deterioration of our cities. The system also produces global warming and endless war. How might we create a system that instead produces sustainability, democracy, peace? Fundamentally, it means changing who owns the country. If we can democratize wealth in a society where the richest 20 Americans alone control more wealth than the bottom half combined, we can democratize political power. One design for a next system, what I call the pluralist commonwealth, helps clarify what we want and how we get there. It takes a plural approach to building different forms of commonwealth. Taken together, such forms create a practical and decentralized mosaic of a democratic economy to transform and displace the predatory, extractive elements of the current system. Cooperatives, for example, are economic alternatives to top-down corporate workplaces. They address community needs instead of maximizing profits, and they bring democracy both to decision-making and to the ownership of wealth. 130 million Americans are already involved in one or another kind of cooperative, and 10 million people work at employee-owned companies. Some cities have also begun linking worker-owned firms together in community-building strategies. Such linked businesses can also provide goods and services to nonprofit institutions with billions of dollars in revenues, like hospitals, universities, and local governments. Unlike corporations, such institutions don't pick up and leave, and this creates stable demand, helping stabilize worker-owned companies. Such cities are engaged in a very decentralized form of economic planning, Planning, often controlled by corporations, is common in every advanced economy. But who makes the decision, how transparently, and for what aims are key questions of system design. Planning starting at the level of the community keeps money circulating locally and ensures more stability. The pluralist commonwealth envisions joint ventures between community and worker groups and regional enterprises to handle larger-scale economic matters. Such publicly accountable institutions can eventually displace large corporations. Participatory budgeting is another tool. It allows community members to vote on taxpayer-funded proposals. It also opens the way to thinking about participatory regional and national planning that one day could guide public investment in transportation, technology, and many other larger industries. The Pluralist Commonwealth also includes nonprofit credit unions, community development financial institutions, and city and state public banks that invest where private banks often won't. 
Such an infrastructure can help build toward regional and national public banking alternatives to Wall Street. Banks capable of supporting regional plans, offsetting recessions, and averting financial crises and bailouts. Taken together, the pluralist Commonwealth creates interconnected structures, which, in the course of daily functioning, foster democratic, egalitarian, and ecological values. Companies that don't grow endlessly means fewer carbon emissions or resource scrambles. Democratizing wealth ownership amplifies the voices of ordinary people in electoral politics. Planning allows people to allocate time and work more democratically, freeing up time for community involvement. Step by step, the plural institutions of the pluralist Commonwealth aim to transform America from the ground up, creating democratic foundations for a world that's not threatened by climate change, inequality, and militarism. Building out from the communities to the state, regional, and ultimately the national level, the pluralist Commonwealth envisions a decentralized and democratic country and a sustainable planet for generations to come. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed, angry, and motivated, it is time to take action. Today's activism, build your community activism skills with the Citizen Muscle Boot Camp. Now, today's episode is about getting a new perspective on multiple levels. Personal, one step up to your immediate surroundings, your community level, like where you work, and all the way up to the societal and political levels. But it's important to always remember that these levels are connected. As the student and feminist movements of the 1960s taught us, personal is political. So I do hope that you take some of the ideas expressed in today's show and apply them to your own personal life and make your own life better. But you can take it a lot further than that. And depending on what you can and are willing to contribute, there are many things you can do. But one of the best things is to take action in your own community. Grassroots movements are the backbone of national change. And we need an army of skilled change makers to build those movements more than ever. But that can sound a bit daunting, right? So instead of giving you just a single action to take today, we have found this tool we think you'll like that is made to help walk you through the steps of getting involved as a citizen activist. Whether you are brand new to activism or just looking for a refresher course, we strongly encourage you to sign up for the Citizen Muscle Boot Camp from the Story of Stuff Project. It's a free online video course, and it's designed to get you flexing your citizen muscles and building the skills you need to make change on the issues you care about in your communities. So you can call it your New Year's resolution, call it your first step in your renewed determination in response to the election, call it whatever you want, but if you need a helping hand getting started, then check out the Citizen Muscle Bootcamp. Uh, the bootcamp is hosted by Annie Leonard, founder of the Story of Stuff Project, uh, originally made famous almost 10 years ago by the Story of Stuff uh, video on YouTube. We got 4 million views. Uh, you should check that out as well, by the way. And she, now she's the current executive director of Greenpeace USA. And the, the series involves 
hands-on interactive online exercises and some additional tips to practice as you go about your everyday life. All you need to participate is an internet connection and the willingness to spend about an hour or two a week for four weeks learning how to make the world a better place. So head over to bootcamp.storyofstuff.org to register and start your training today. The sooner we can get started on making change in our own communities, the better off we're all going to be. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if having effective skills and tools to create change on the personal, communal, and societal levels is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Citizen Muscle Bootcamp via social media so that other junior network can take action too. Get trained, stand up, fight back. There's no time to lose. I wake up in the morning and what do I see? I see my reflection in the mirror looking at me, telling me what you're gonna do. Now you say you won't change, but if you don't change yourself, you have no right to complain. So what are we gonna do? There is a scene in Gone with the Wind, not one of the better known ones, not the frankly scarlet, I don't give a damn uh, scene, but there's a scene in in uh, Gone with the Wind when the war is over, red is gone, Scarlet comes back into the plantation house at Terra, and her Irish father is clearly deranged, sitting at the table, counting Confederate dollars. It's obvious that Gerald O'Hara has gone insane because he is focused on what is now completely worthless Confederate money as if the currency of the fallen South was somehow going to save him. And that image came to mind for me today because in a very real way, Gerald O'Hara is a symbol for corporate America. As the Buddhist philosopher Alan Watts has famously put it, money does not exist. It's nonsense to talk about not having enough money for education, health care, housing, the infrastructure, because money is only a concept. It's a measuring tool. You would never hear a carpenter say that they're not going to finish building a house because they have run out of inches. Money is only how we measure value. It's the way that we have agreed to exchange the things that really are valuable. Money has no inherent worth. But what does have inherent worth? Things that are of limited supply. Food has inherent worth. Land has value. They're not making any more of it. Clean water, clean air have value because we have to have them to live. Our lives have value because we are mortal. We may extend our lives, but we know that there's always a limit to that. Money doesn't really exist. Forests exist. 
Fish in the ocean exist. You and I, we exist, and we have value. That's what I loved about David Suzuki's uh, video clip that we used as our wisdom, wisdom lesson today, because economics, for all of its pretense, is not a science. <clears throat> it's really more of an aspect of sociology. But we tend to treat it, we tend to treat economics as if it were on a par with chemistry or hard math. It isn't. Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush in 1992, largely saying, it's the economy stupid. And that resonated with people because what he meant was not really the economy. What he really meant was unemployment. Uh, he, he meant it was poverty. He, he meant it was homelessness. It was trying to live without health insurance or without a retirement program. And for a lot of us, it was fear. Fear that we would grow old and sick without the resources to take care of ourselves. Fear that we might not be able to provide for our kids if something just went a little bit wrong, if we were unemployed for weeks or months, that we might not be able to keep a house, we might not be able to keep our kids uh, housed and clothed and fed. It was fear that we wouldn't be able to uh, provide an education for them, or that they would end up stuck in some crummy job that they hated, but we couldn't do anything to find more satisfaction in their lives. Clinton could say that it was the economy, but the fact is that the real issue is that economic reasoning has created fear in our society. The people who control the economy, the captains of industry, the banking system, Wall Street, they keep rigging the system so that people who don't actually produce wealth are taking a larger and larger share of the wealth to themselves. Natural resources is where the real wealth is. But natural resources are limited. They're especially limited if you talk about them in a renewable way. But as Gandhi said, there is more than enough for the world's needs. There's not enough for the world's greed. There is, my friends, there is no morally defensible reason for there to be a single homeless person in the United States of America. We have more empty houses that have been foreclosed on by banks than we have homeless people in this country. We throw away every day 10 times as much food as it would take to resolve all of the hunger issues in America. If only we had a more just, a more humane, a more logical, a more sensible way of distributing goods rather than this fake currency economic system, everyone who wanted a college education could have one. And laborers would not have to work seven days a week or work two jobs or three jobs. Human beings in, in the industrial age in this modern era shouldn't have to work more than 30 or 32 hours a week, and everyone should, should get a month or six weeks of paid vacation every year. What's more, if we had a more equitable means of distributing resources, we would have more actors, we would have more poets, more musicians, more artists, more architects. People are trapped 
And, and there's potential research scientists and inventors who are trapped doing a horrible, crummy job because they are afraid of the economy. They are afraid to actually use their talents to become more in life because we have trapped them in a cycle of barely existing poverty. Our society is technologically, scientifically, and intellectually capable of being so much better. Our world could be so much better with the resources that we have in hand. But our government, our systems of employment, even the delivery of our health care and education systems are run by economics rather than ethics. We think about balance sheets before we think about people. Things like clean water and air, a safe food supply, or even a life that is lived as a musician or an artist is what an economist will call an externality. For an economist, the value of a great work of art is what it would bring at auction. But if you walk through the Nelson Adkins uh, Art Museum in Kansas City and you stand in front of that huge canvas of Monet's water lilies, is the first thing that comes to your mind what that painting is worth? I mean, is that really how we judge art? If you've had the good fortune, as I have, to walk through the British Museum, to walk among the Elgin marbles from the Greek Uh, Parthenon, or to stand in front of the Rosetta Stone, is the value of these things what they would bring at auction? Or isn't there some other way to talk about what has value in life? In economics, a forest only has value after it has been cut down and turned into lumber and sold. For an economist, the value of a cold mountain stream is zero unless it can be bottled and sold in a grocery store. Men and women, at best, our economy is only one concern among many, and it is much less of a concern than the health of our ecology and the happiness of our children and our grandchildren. Surely this is obvious to us, right? I mean, I'm not saying anything that you don't already know. And yet, our government does not appear to be aware of this. And this is a Republican and a Democratic problem because truly both of our political parties are fundamentally corporatist uh, parties. One may be more acceptable to us than the other, but viewed at a distance, they look an awful lot alike and they look like corporations. We are now very engaged in raising support for the Native Americans who are rallying rallying around the Sioux tribe at Standing Rock, North Dakota. The Indians and others who have gathered there in peaceful protest choose to call themselves water protectors because they're not there to riot. They're not leading a protest. They're really just trying to be good stewards of the earth. They're trying to protect the Missouri River from the prospect of being polluted by uh, crude oil. It's not a hypothetical issue. Just since 2010, just over the last uh, five or six years, there have been over 3,000 pipeline eruptions or leaks in the United States. Uh, More than 1,000 of those were crude oil. There has been more than 
80 people who've been killed in pipeline accidents. Over a million gallons of crude oil has been spilled on the ground and in the water systems. And in fact, the largest spill, 800,000 gallons of crude oil, was spilled in North Dakota in 2013. You wonder why the sewer are not buying in to the notion that these pipelines are safe. A pipeline in North Dakota was struck by lightning. It exploded and dumped 800,000 gallons of crude oil on the ground before they could get it stopped. Just last month, there was a gasoline pipeline that had aged in Alabama, and it blew up in Helena. And some friends of mine in the area called because they know that my brother lives in Helena, Alabama. So I called him immediately, and he and his family were fine. Their house was fine, but they were very close to where the explosion had happened. The explosion had killed someone, had sent more than 80 people to the hospital, and my brother's response was, that he was afraid their gas prices were going to go up. That's how economics teaches us to view our lives. I hung up the phone. I could hardly believe that my ordained Methodist pastor brother was talking about the explosion in terms of gasoline prices and not in the death of one of his neighbors and injuries to dozens and dozens of people. But then... After I found out that he voted for Trump, I'm not looking for a lot of logical conversation uh, out of John right now. But, but truly, how, how hard does your heart have to be to think about gasoline prices first after an explosion like that? But then I turned on NPR, which I do every day, and you should too, good, reliable, liberal, national public radio, they mentioned the explosion, and the first thing they said was locals feared that their gasoline prices will go up. How did this happen to, where did our humanity go? This is no accident. This is a lifetime of training to think about everything in terms of dollars and cents. As I've been reading about Native American cultures, that the cultures that our European and African ancestors first encountered on this continent, one of the stark differences between our cultures, one that shows up in differences of languages, was that in most Native American languages, they didn't even have a word for work. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have careers. They didn't leave their children behind to go to the office. They did what they did to survive together. They lived and acted as families. The language, the logic of economics has so seeped into our skulls that we literally raise our children with the stated or unstated presumption that the purpose of living is to get a job so you can pay your bills. People, do you know that you are more than a job and that paying your bills is not the only goal to living? Native Americans helped each other build their shelters. They hunted, they fished, they farmed, but they didn't have a word for work or job or career or even retirement because they did these things collectively for their own existence. And not many of us, I'm guessing, would embrace a return to a Stone Age standard of living. But our choice in this country in the 21st century is not one of either living with constant anxiety of not being able to pay your bills 
or going out and trying to live off the land. Now, you've heard me say before that I believe that the Dakota Access Pipeline project will be eventually finished in some way. I hope there are some crucial changes, but but it's a $3.8 billion project, and $3 billion of that has already been spent. It's 1,100 miles of pipeline, and more than 1,000 miles of it have been built. So I think it's going to be finished. But that is because we think in economic terms. What is the value of the Missouri River without crude oil in it? What is the value of that? What is the value of a river that meets the Mississippi at St. Louis and then travels down to Cairo where it meets the Ohio and flows past Memphis all the way down to New Orleans? What is the value of a water system that provides drinking water to millions of Americans and waters the farmlands that feeds half of this nation? I'm just saying, it's the water, stupid. It's the air, it's the land, it's the food, it's the breath, it's the drink, it's life itself. If we are not all protectors of the land, the air, and the water, then we're just like some crazy old man sitting in an old plantation house counting worthless cash while the world falls apart all around us. We just heard clips today featuring backstory discussing the history of happiness, the next system project discussed how the commons could and should work, the Atlantic magazine had a feature about a company moving to a 32-hour work week, Courtney Martin's TED Talk was about the new American dream, the next system project also featured Gar Alperovis discussing a concept called the pluralist commonwealth, our activism for today is to encourage you to try out the boot camp to flex your citizenship muscles at bootcamp.storyofstuff.org, and finally we just heard a progressive faith sermon by Reverend Roger Ray about the economics of externalities. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Bill from Michigan. I, I called before. I was a little nervous leaving my first message, so I uh, called back to make it a little bit more coherent. But uh, I've been catching up on the shows for the, from the last month or so, and uh kind of wanted to add to a couple things and then, you know, go from there. Uh, first thing, the election results. I don't think that, from my point of view, that Clinton losing was white people racism myself from my point of view it was a rejection of clinton herself and the establishment which from people's point of view she represents and is just you know another one of those same old same old and we don't want that i mean every side whether you're right left middle whatever you know something's wrong with the establishment we can all tell that and and that's what the election of trump represented to me is people were just done with the same old same old and want something different and that's the only person who didn't really seem to be you know the same old same old you know like i said i don't i don't think it's white racism or whatever you know i mean let's be honest there's racism no matter what color people are you know i still don't think it was white racism or white privilege i mean most people most white people don't even know what it means to be privileged i mean you know they just want to rip 
go to work, raise their families and live their life. You know, I mean, they're not don't really think about those things. After that, uh, the electoral ban, I, I'm, I'm completely for reforming it. I'm not against ban- abolishing it because then you pretty much take the voice away from people that don't live in populated areas. And their voice is important, too, regardless, you know, of whether they live in big New York City or out in the middle of the boondocks. You'd be effectively taking away their right to, you know, have an opinion and weigh in on things. And lastly, uh, how to talk to a conservative. I'm conservative on some things and liberal on other things, but I am around a lot of conservative people. So uh, here's, here's how I do it. First, I just talk to them. You know, how do you want to be treated? You want to be treated and talk to, you know, like you're just a person and, you know, that, that does better than condescending and telling people, no, you're wrong, you're this, you're that, calling them racist, just throwing in the privilege, whatever else you want. I mean, we do have problems, and, and I do think that we need to get those problems out in the open and have a conversation about it. You know, white people need to get over whatever their fear is and say, hey, these minorities are being targeted by police more than white people and that's an issue at the same time black people need to realize you can't just run around calling white people racist and it's white lashes this or that is this effectively black people being racist towards white people and then white people are going to get angry and be racist right back i mean you know how everybody wants talks about you know wanting to unite everybody so why don't we do it why don't we get over our petty crap realize we're all humans we're in the same boat and if we don't do something about it we're all going to sink and drown that's my point of view a lot of people i know think the same thing to me it all comes down to are we going to just keep pushing each other and see how long we push each other back and forth or are we going to get over our petty crap and for the better of our children and grandchildren and in the future generations of humans you know get over this crap and move forward you know, that, that that's my opinion, you know. I mean, I may be wrong about some things. I may be right about some things. But, you know, I mean, that's what the average person thinks, I think. You know, regardless of race. We just want to raise our kids, go to our jobs, and live life. It's nothing more than that. That's, that's my opinion. Thank you, Jay. Hey, Jay, this is Eric in San Francisco. Uh, you know, listening to the last few weeks of your show has been really frustrating. The idea that we're supposed to somehow reach out to conservatives, that we can just craft the perfect argument that somehow we're going to get them to get on board with civil rights, to re-extend the voting rights to everyone, to save women's rights, uh, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, uh, to stop police brutality. I mean, just the gamut, even climate change. It's just, it's not going to happen. Atreus points out in his blog, uh, and I think he makes a very good point, that the conservatives are against it because we're in favor of it. And he cites a whole bunch of examples over the years. Romney care became Obamacare, right? When Mitt Romney supported it and the Heritage Foundation supported it, it was okay when Barack Obama supports it. Suddenly, it's evil. Barack Obama was going to the Republicans and saying, hey, yeah, I'll go ahead and cut Social Security. And the Republicans said no. Okay, I think, you know, right now, if we were to say the sky is blue, 
the Republicans are going to say, no, it's not because we're liberal. That's what it ultimately comes down to. It comes down to tribalism. And the way I'm basically looking at it right now is we could spend the next four years sitting in our corners and desperately trying to think of great ways to appeal to conservatives who have shown for the last 40 years that they have no desire to work with us. Or we could actually decide, screw it, screw these people. We're going to do our best to save this society. And we're going to drag them kicking and screaming. And we're going to do the good for them, whether or not they want it. Okay? So that's my say. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or detailed explanation of something to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So just a few responses to today's voicemails. Uh, first of all, we hear from Bill from Michigan. Sometimes liberal, sometimes conservative, depending on the issue. Uh, he had a lot of things to say. I'm just going to respond to a few of them. Uh, first of all, the results of the election. What caused it? Was it racism? Wasn't it racism? Just to start, the problem with any discussion about was one issue the cause of the election or another is that your pl- premise is completely flawed to begin with because unless you are, are comparing some completely outlandish, not the least bit related to reality sort of issue, then the answer is invariably going to be yes and to both. Did racism and or the indifference to it, very important clause in that sentence, play an enormous role in this election? Yes, obviously. Trump has been the most outspokenly racist candidate we've seen in maybe ever, uh, you know, but you have to go back to like Jackson to to find someone who is as overtly racist as Trump was. But that doesn't mean that everyone who voted for him voted for explicitly racist reasons. It just means that many people were indifferent to that racism. Also, rejection of the establishment that Bill mentioned. Yes, obviously. that's That played an enormous role. It played an enormous role in the success of Bernie Sanders in, in the primaries. You know, he didn't end up winning, but he far ex- exceeded even his own expectations of how far he could get in that uh, campaign. So, yes, th- that's a huge part of it. Also, the FBI undoubtedly played a role. I've heard interviews with voters who said, I, I was going to go for Clinton, but then when they reopened that FBI, I was just like, I just can't trust her. So, yes, clearly the FBI swayed some people. I don't know how many. Not, I don't know if it was enough to sway the election, but some. If you want to get into voter suppression, repealing of the Voting Rights Act, failures of the media, the answer to all of those is yes, they all affected the election. Yes, and to every single one of them. Secondly, he's talking about the Electoral College. I appreciate that he's open to reforming the Electoral College, and I can appreciate on one level his concerns that if we if we were to repeal it entirely, then rural voters would be left sort of in the lurch. And I don't agree at all with, with that conclusion for a variety of reasons, but on the surface, I, I get where he's coming from. Keep in mind that only rural areas in swing states get any attention 
thanks to the Electoral College. That's the problem. So there are plenty of rural areas in California and Texas and Montana and Wyoming and Utah and Idaho and like a couple of other, uh, a couple dozen more non-swing states. Like pr- pretty much every state has some rural area and they don't get any attention whatsoever from presidential candidates. Not in the least. So the idea that the Electoral College, which their only role is in the presidential election, that that should be kept in place so that rural voters get a voice doesn't make any sense because most rural voters don't get a voice anyway. Uh, Secondly, rural voters are already protected. That's what the Senate is for. The Senate gives two senators to every state, regardless of population. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard these numbers before, but maybe someone hasn't. Wyoming It's one of the least populous states, maybe the least populous state we have. They have less than 600,000 residents. That's less than the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. And California has a population of more than 39 million people. And they have the same number of senators who have the same amount of power in the Senate. So that is the compromise. We already figured this out. We already decided how to try to balance popular demand with lower density uh, needs and and the needs of smaller and less dense states. So we do not need to keep the Electoral College in order to protect rural voters because we already have systems in place for that. And then the last point on that is if we're talking about the Electoral College and trying to protect the interests of members of states, keep in mind that swing states, purely because they are swing states, get a lot more interest, not just during the presidential elections, but when the federal government is deciding like where to build infrastructure uh, programs, where to send money to try to put people to work, increase investment, uh, increase infrastructure, increase economic activity thanks to that new infrastructure, Uh, things like high-speed rail lines. This is the story that I've heard told more than once, that when the federal government was trying to implement a new high-speed rail line, they didn't put it where a lot of people were. They didn't put it between New York and D.C., that that very high-density corridor. They proposed they put it in Florida. I wonder why they wanted to give Florida a bunch of infrastructure spending money. So I think that there are plenty of legitimate concerns about making sure the values of rural voters are represented in our federal government. I do not think by any stretch that the Electoral College is the way to do that. Uh, and the very last thing, I mean, Bill and I clearly do not have uh, similar perspectives on race relations that would require a whole new conversation. So I'm just going to leave it there for now. Uh, second caller we heard from Eric from San Francisco was saying that we just shouldn't even bother trying to talk to conservatives because they feel the way they feel purely in response to what we're advocating. And believe me, I'm not blind to any of those examples that he gave, but I think there is a world of difference between Republican politicians and professional Republican tribal members and regular humans who live in the United States. And so I am not saying that we need to sit in a corner and sit quietly trying to formulate perfect uh, arguments that will convince the Republican Party to come over to our side. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Besides, I I think if you've been listening to the show, I'm not shying away from 
progressive ideas and interests and fighting tactics and all of those things. So we can do both of these at the same time. But the purpose of these conversations about, you know, how do we restructure arguments for progressive ideas in such a way that they can resonate with conservatives, it's not so you can go have a conversation with Mitch McConnell. It's so you can have a conversation with Bill from Michigan. There are clearly this this huge swath of people, I mean, or, or let's, I'll, I'll grant it to you, maybe it's a small swath. It's still a swath. And there are these people in the country who are reachable, and they may tip to one side or the other. And if you are better at making your argument in a way that resonates with them, then you may pull them to our side and they vote. So I definitely see why it feels good to say, no, we're just going to drag them kicking and screaming into the future. But it would be easier to drag the real hardcore conservatives kicking and screaming into the future if we also had more of those moderates in the middle on our side. That's all I'm saying. So keep the calls coming in, whether it's just a comment or question, or if you'd like to try to explain something you heard in a different way, give a new spin on it in a progressive light or a conservative frame. Either way, I'd be interested to hear those. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing See past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing.